You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 5th of January 2022 on Monocle 24. President Putin calls for an orthodox Christmas ceasefire in Ukraine. Is requiring a negative COVID test from Chinese travellers good policy or just posturing? And could you live in a six square metre nano flat? I'm Georgina Godwin. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you live from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guests are Mark Lowcock and Latika Burke. We'll discuss the day's big stories and we'll get the latest on the Russian leader's orders for a ceasefire over Orthodox Christmas. Plus, Andrew Muller reflects on a period of political upheaval in 1960s Czechoslovakia. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. Russian President Vladimir Putin has ordered his defence minister to impose a 36-hour ceasefire on the Ukrainian front line, beginning on Friday, which coincides with Russian Orthodox Christmas. Well, I'm joined down the line for more on this by the Russia analyst Stephen Diel. Stephen, welcome to the programme. I understand that this request came originally from a Patriot Kirill, the, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church. Can you tell us more? Yes, that's right. It came originally from Kirill, um, and uh, President Zelensky's office in Kiev was very quick to respond and describe it uh, as a uh, cynical trap um, and just propaganda. Um, I first uh, was alerted to it by working on my computer this afternoon, and um, I have a, a feed from Medusa, which I've mentioned frequently. It's a very, very good service for what's going on, not only in the war, but generally in Russia, uh, in Russian and in English. And it popped up in the corner of the screen, and I saw the word Putin, and I saw the word ceasefire. And it, it's one of these things that comes and it disappears quite quickly. So I immediately went to the Medusa site and then saw the word Christmas which, of course, it's the Orthodox Christmas uh, on the 7th of January. Uh, And then I realised that, in fact, uh, the assessment by President Zelensky is absolutely correct. Uh, It is just a a trap and it's pure propaganda and it's incredibly cynical. I mean, to what end? Is it to demonise Ukraine in the eyes of Russian Christians? Basically, yes, because, you know, this is a war that Putin started. Uh, It is entirely uh, his fault that it started in the first place. There was no provocation from Ukraine. Uh, and you know, now he's saying, oh, let's have a ceasefire for 36 hours so that, so that Christian people, never mind the Christian people that have been bombing the hell out of in Ukraine for, for the last uh, nearly 11 months, uh, but that, that, they can, that they can celebrate Christmas. Um, in fact, for probably the majority of the population in both Russia and Ukraine, New Year is the bigger holiday. Um, of course, atheism was a part of was very much a part of Soviet ideology. And so a lot of people um, simply are not believers. Uh, and just to show how cynical the Russians can be about New Year, um, they w- were sending um, missiles and drones to attack Kiev and other parts of Ukraine uh, as, as the, the clock struck midnight and heralding the start of 2023. One of the most cynical pictures already I've seen this year is the tail fin of a missile that was fired at Kiev and was shot down, um, landed in a a children's playground. And on the tail fin, uh, someone had written Happy New Year. In other words, someone who'd launched this this missile. Um, So the the level of cynicism, it was already high. But this declaration of a a ceasefire over Orthodox Christmas, um, so that 
if the Ukrainians don't keep it, Putin can turn around to his people and say, look, you see, we, we wanted to have a ceasefire. Um, I, I hope that um, not too many people will fall for it. Uh, Ukraine's taken many steps to decrease the power of the Russian Orthodox Church in the country. Is it still an influential movement? It is. And in fact, there was a, another very significant development today was that one of the main um, uh, cathedrals of the Orthodox Church in Kiev uh, is being taken off the Ukrainian Orthodox Church and being taken back into the hands of the Ukrainian government. Now, this is because uh, f for the last, particularly the last couple of months, there was a, there was um, a lot of work done in November by the Ukrainian um, uh, police services. And they've discovered that uh, there's there's quite a lot of sympathy for Russia amongst elements of the author, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Um, now they've been fairly close together. Of course, they both suffered under communism. As I said, atheism was part of the ideology, and and um, uh, the, the what is often simply termed the Russian Orthodox Church had to uh, adapt to to try and live under communism and try and survive. We know that an awful lot of priests who uh, who were able to uh, to work as priests were also agents for the KGB in Soviet times uh, and that's never been completely shaken off and there are still these these links part of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church has now said actually we want nothing to do with the Russian Orthodox Church uh, because of what's happened and indeed some of them even encourage people to celebrate Christmas on the 25th of December as of course the Western Christendom does um, so there is that split has already appeared. But um, this development today of this taking the cathedral back from the church, from the Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox Church, is significant. And I think we will see more developments in this area. And um, the Ukrainian Orthodox Church, I think, will is going to have to come out soon and actually declare where it really stands and, and see who sticks with it and who would actually still go in the favour of the Russian Orthodox Church, which is now, for many people, totally discredited. Stephen, thank you very much indeed. That was Stephen DL there. Well, we turn now to our panellists, Samart Lokok, Fellow of the Centre for Global Development and former Head of Humanitarian Affairs at the UN, and by Latika Burke, who's a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. I have a question for both of you, and this is not just politeness. How are you? I really want your health stats. Oh, well, I could uh, consult my uh, smartwatch. I've got a heart rate of 81 beats per minute. I've burnt 1,900 calories and walked 15,000 steps today. So I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> but in terms of COVID or any other of the uh, seasonal afflictations? I'm very lucky. I've never had COVID since 2020. But you did have it once? Once. Never again. Mark? I, I never have knowingly had COVID. Of course, there's many, many people around the world who've had it without knowing. And I seem to be a, a I'm a lucky virus-free zone still. Yeah, well, me too. But but I, I mean, I put that down to the fact that I smoke and you can't have... You two have super genes. That's <laughs> yeah. what that is. <laughs> but listen, after almost three years, China will reopen its borders this weekend. And this follows the suspension of the zero COVID policy on December the 7th after widespread protests against lockdowns in the country. It's now suffering a surge in infections. But the problem is there's no clarity as to the number of deaths and hospitalizations in China. Beijing's been downplaying the figures and European countries are concerned that an influx of tourists carrying the virus will shortly arrive. Well, the US, Australia and many countries in Europe have mandated that travellers arriving from China must provide a negative COVID test before they embark on their journey. But not everyone agrees. Well, one country that's going against its Five Eyes allies is New Zealand. Now, Latika, this is something you've been covering in your reporting for the Sydney Morning Herald. What's the rationale behind New Zealand's decision? 
New Zealand says the tests won't protect public health and that they're unjustified against China. And uh, actually, they're right. Um, actually, imposing pre-departure tests on Chinese travellers is not really going to save New Zealand public from the spread of COVID because COVID is now rife in that country and they have very good vaccination rates, as does Australia. Where, however, this one is concerning is that this is clearly a diplomatic and political move from the countries that have decided to impose these tests on China. And it's a direct rebuke against China's excessive secrecy that we've seen the whole way through this pandemic, including the failure to alert the rest of the world in time that they had what was a highly transmissible virus circulating in their country. And New Zealand has... We should say, um, I think some people would say, has been a weaker member of the Five Eyes. It has not joined in on a lot of statements that have been critical of China, server Hong Kong and the national security law there. So there's some concern here that um, for once, uh, although New Zealand extremely uh, leapt for extremely excessive and restrictive measures during the pandemic on on health reasons, when it came to this decision, uh, they were deciding to go with a looser health policy, but people fear perhaps that's out of uh, diplomatic reasons and not the right ones if, mm. you're, if you're a member of the Five Eyes. Uh, Mark, as Latika said, one of the main issues is that despite World Health Organization requests, China's not being open about this. And I guess the reason this matters is what we need to know if there are new variants coming out of China. I mean, that's, that's desperately important to us. Now, you're a member of the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board, that's the WHO appointed independent body whose job it is to predict and prepare for the next pandemic. So how does China's reticence impact on your work? Well, uh, there is a rationale for wanting to follow the spread of new variants of the of the um, COVID virus. Um, there's, a, there's a number of benefits from doing that. So, for example, doing pre-testing allows you to gather more data and information uh, on how fast the new variant is spreading and the, the scale of it and the kind of impact it might have. And that's a reasonable thing to do, which, of course, everybody did during the pandemic. The second thing, though, that you get if you have some uh, pre-testing before people travel is a deterrent to sick people to uh, not to travel. And that's a reasonable thing to expect people to do. Of course, the world has missed China's travellers. And it's a very good thing to see the prospect of them being able to uh, come back. And I think that there is a concern, um, which is widely held, and Mike Ryan, who's the very experienced, capable head of emergencies at the WHO, was quoted on this uh, just in the last 24 hours. There is a concern that um, China should be more open about the scale of spread of the current problem and share its data more. That's something that is a big lesson that comes out of the whole of the pandemic experience and something that we on the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board would like to encourage more. And indeed, there are negotiations underway at the moment for a, a new global treaty um, which would require everybody who signs up to it to be more open on that kind of thing. So when you see a big country not doing that, I think it's reasonable for people to be concerned. And I wonder if testing wastewater from planes, which a lot of countries who haven't imposed these bans have said that they will do, I think even New Zealand has said it will test wastewater, that is likely then to point to new variants coming in, as well as to the extent of the infection. So I'm not an expert on the science of that, but essentially anything you can do to gather useful new data, which is cost effective and enables you to predict and model how things are panning out, that's got to be a good thing to do from yeah. everybody's perspective. Um, I, and that's one of the lessons from the pandemic. 
And I think that's the key, really. If you look at what Italy did, it tested uh, arrivals on flights from China on arrival in Italy. Now, that's clever because they can then have access to the information, the data. They can check if they've got any new variants coming in. I'm not really sure, other than the deterrent and the diplomatic punitive measure here, what pre-departure testing conducted in China, where China still gets a hold on that data, if indeed people do go ahead and and do the tests, Um, there's no way of verifying it. And I'm not really sure what pre-departure testing does for the world's quest in trying to understand the spread and scale of China's outbreak and if there are new variants. To me, it would seem more logical and more scientific to impose that on arrival. Mm. I mean, can the WHO police this in any way? Well, the WHO can encourage countries to do the right thing and Latika's critique essentially takes as its starting point, which I understand, some concern over the reliability, transparency, how much we can trust what China's doing. In a better world, everybody would be encouraging more testing and more data sharing. And, you know, that's something the Global Preparedness Monitoring Board would certainly want to keep asking for, even if there are legitimate questions, which Latika has just set out about whether it's really Mm. happening all the time. Now, Estonia is one of the countries that said special rules are not needed as there are no direct flights between Estonia and China. But Estonia is contemplating taking action over another country, that's Russia. The foreign minister of Estonia said yesterday that the country is developing a legal basis to transfer Russian assets under EU sanctions to Ukrainian ownership. Uh, Latika, this comes after months of lobbying from Kyiv. What's Zelensky's specific ask? Uh, I'm not across that specifically, sorry, Georgina, but uh, I do believe that he wants the proceeds of these assets to help fund Ukrainian warfighting efforts. And that would seem to me a very reasonable request. But also what an innovative idea this is. You know, people say Australia is a lucky country. Australia is a country that digs commodities out of the ground and ships it to people. If you really want to look at smart countries, it's tiny countries like Estonia, it's countries like Israel that innovate their way to success. And this example is really, really clever from Estonia. And I think it is a great template for the rest of the world to be looking at. It's no good just holding these yachts in port and letting everyone admire them and write stories. Why not actually use them and and hit those oligarchs where it hurts? Yeah, I mean, Mark, do we know uh, who these assets belong to and if it can be done legally? Well, there's an enormous degree of um, opacity and lack of transparency on who owns what. Clearly, quite a lot of what has been locked down um, is owned by individual oligarchs rather than the Russian state. But the Russian state has had a lot of assets uh, frozen as well. The clearest we've had recently to a precedent for this kind of action is when, after the Taliban took over in Afghanistan in 2021, the US locked down six and a half, seven billion dollars worth of Afghan foreign exchange reserves. And then some months after that, it made it clear it was willing to release some of those assets to be used by humanitarian organisations inside Afghanistan. And that process, which has been complicated to organise, was was kind of given a degree of mandate by the UN Security Council to pursue that kind of discussion. Of course, this is different because this uh, this is Russian assets to be given to another country. Mm-hmm. And I think that will be that will end up, I suspect, being a step too far for some countries. Actually, quite a few other countries would like to keep the bargaining chip of being able to unlock Russian assets as something that can be brought onto the table as and when which 
probably at some point will happen. There's a negotiation to bring the scale of the fighting back down to a um, lower level. Would this make any difference, what the Estonians are suggesting, uh, to how the Russians think about life? No, I don't think so. It's not going to move the dial. Mm. I mean, Latika, as you say, other countries, if this succeeds, may, may consider doing the same. I wonder if it will also permit other countries to start action against property holders from nations beyond Russia, seeing as aggressors or, or, or colonisers. And that is the absolute concern here. And that would be a worrying precedent set. And certainly no country would want that happening, for example, to some of their own citizens, dubious or otherwise. Um, we kind of have a little example of this in Australia, where Chinese assets by people who've been outed as spies or foreign agents and then chucked out of the country who bought huge trophy properties. Uh, you know, this argument about what to do with their assets is a live one. I think this is only going to increase as countries develop a more moral stance on some of these individuals and who they allow into their countries and who they allow to buy. But really, that also is places an onus on governments about who they let buy assets in their countries in the first place. Mm. I mean, and I suppose another example of this would have been Mozambique uh, in 1976, the first government of Mozambique led by Samora Michel decided just a year after independence to nationalise all the real estate abandoned by the Portuguese, of course, the former colonisers. That's perhaps a story for another day as it didn't work out quite as planned. Uh, but Mozambique does have cause to celebrate now because the country is joining Ecuador, Japan, Malta and Switzerland in taking up their two-year stint, one unopposed in June, on the UN Security Council. For Mozambique and for Switzerland, this is the first time they've served on the body. Mark, with your UN uh, involvement, can you explain the system of having temporary members? How much say do they have during their two-year term? Well, five have come off. Uh, come on as you listed five have come off as well and it's worth just noting the impact of that on the balance of the council so india ireland kenya mexico norway have come off i think the biggest change is replacing india with japan that moves the council a little bit in a western pro-liberal democracy direction and we may see in a relatively small scale way uh, that playing out, particularly because the biggest issue in the council is going to be Ukraine, which is a Russia, China versus the rest type of discussion in the council. Mm. What is it worth to be a small country on the council? It depends how you play your hand. What you do get is the chance to be the chairman of the Security Council, president of the Security Council, two or three times in your two-year tenure. And that helps you set the agenda. And I used to get asked a lot by ambassadors from small countries, well, how do I use that opportunity? And the smartest ones find a relatively tractable issue and try and make some progress on it. My favourite example is when in 2018 the Dutch were on the council and they said we want to do something about food security and famine risk. And they managed to negotiate a resolution 2417, which made it a requirement, an obligation of the Secretary General and people like me to tell the Security Council when we were so worried about a conflict that we thought it would lead to famine. And I was able to use that resolution two or three times, once on Yemen, once on Tigray, to put on the agenda or, or, or dare the Security Council not to have a discussion of these big problems. And that was a modestly useful thing to do and a clever use of their time on the council by a small country. Yeah. Latika, I mean, as Mark points out, the permanent members all have a veto. And of course, Russia is using that to avoid censure. Does it make the whole exercise a bit pointless? Yeah, I think there are some real questions about the value of the UNSC. I mean, we've barely talked about this organisation, this institution, since the start of the Ukraine war. 
I mean, that is unprecedented and it's a shame on the US UNSC that it's been made so redundant. Having said that, I do think it is worth middle powers and smaller countries having a larger say through these rotating memberships. Australia sought and was successful in getting a non a temporary seat a temporary seat on there a couple of years ago, and it was put to very good use when Russia shot down MH17 and we passed a resolution on that, and it was seen as a real success for us in being able to stand up in an international fora and to some degree say, look, we think, Russia, you have some answers to give us, and we, small Australia who lost all these people and our citizens, um, have taken this to, to a global level. And it was a really useful and valuable tool, and it was appreciated by the Australian public. The wider question is, of course, not what it wins a government domestically, but what it can achieve internationally. Mm. I'm not sure that the UNSC is achieving much at the moment or has been for many, many years. Uh, Mark, Switzerland's former chief negotiator with the EU wants to see the abolition of the veto. Do you think that there's any chance that that could happen? And what would be the process? How do you achieve structural change? The veto was created when the UN was created. And the only reason why the bigger powers, particularly the US and the Americans, agreed to have a Security Council was that they had a veto. So the choice is not, shall we have the veto or not? The choice is, shall we have the Security Council or not? And this has been one of those little diplomatic games that people have played over recent years. Shall we amend the Constitution or not? Of course, if all the countries wanted to, they could. But there are some obvious ones who don't want to. And, uh, you know... The countries who've come under most pressure on this are the likes of France and Britain, um, who don't have the role they had in the world, arguably, in 1945, and for whom the veto is hard to justify. And those countries, you can see, are quite cheerful about saying, oh, yes, let's have a discussion about reform, in the full knowledge that the countries who would have to agree, Russia, China, the US, are not going to agree. So... It's better to have the council than not to have the council. Uh, I possibly have even more experience of frustration of the council than Latika does, having spent 100 mornings or afternoons briefing them and listening to and answering their questions while in my time at the UN. But it's still better to have a forum um, than not to have a forum. And that's, you know, we just need to recognise that's the situation we face. Mm, I just, so, Georgina, I just think a lot of the problem with these UN agencies, uh, they are still... Um, a kind of echo of a time gone by and they're not really fit for purpose and we do need to have a better discussion about how to change and reform and perhaps enlarge the UNSC. I mean, why is a country like India a temporary member? India should be a permanent member. Maybe Japan should be and then, of course, there'd be some arguments for some non-Western-aligned countries, although you couldn't really say that, that India is one of those. I do think if the, if the international community that cares about these institutions doesn't start owning up to the real and serious problems, we're going to lose them all together and the public will just turn off them completely. As the new world order changes, really. So I would vote for that too, Latika. The question is, is it going to happen? Why is China going to vote for India to be a permanent member? Why, why are they going to vote for Japan to do that? I think what people who 
believe in a better, more effective UN need to focus on is the things you can make change on. And there are quite a lot of those, actually. And at least in the system we have, for all its flaws, which I don't particularly want to defend, you do get a chance to shine a spotlight on bad things because the Russians do have to show up in the Security Council and listen to everyone else's condemnation of some of the things they've done. I saw that in Syria all the time. I saw it in other places. And now we see it in spades in Ukraine. You're right, it's not reported very much. But it is notable that the Russians were forced to agree on having a Security Council resolution on Ukraine shortly after Guterres went to Moscow and then then went to Kiev and the Russians bombed Kiev while he was there. Many countries around the world thought that was a very bad look. And the Russians, recognising that, felt they had to agree at least mm. to a first resolution. So... We'd all like the world to be different. We have to live in the one we have. And the trick is to get what you can get in the conditions we face. I wonder if the five in, five out system works because there just isn't enough space for all members. Would the group become completely unwieldy if they all stayed? I think you do need a limit, um, not least because of the working practices. The, um, one of the reasons every time I went to the Security Council... Um, it took a morning or afternoon is that every member of the council or 15 of them want to talk on every topic, even though most of what they're doing is reading out their prepared remarks or the prepared remarks of the person next to them because they their small team, if they're Malta or a small country, don't have much time to prepare their own remarks. So, um, you know, more recently created um, international bodies like the Global Alliance on Vaccines or Immunisation or some of those new bodies which bring in private sector or NGOs have got new models. But the ones which are universal and are member states will always be constrained by the fact that um, it's set up in a certain way and it's difficult to change it even as the world has moved on. Mm. Well, space, of course, is always an issue, whether it's in our institutions or in our homes. Latika, I know that your boyfriend's <laughs> recently moved in with you and that is causing you space issues. Yes, I mean, we're trying to put two people into the space where there was one, one with a lot of stuff, I might add, that being me. Um, my boyfriend seems to have a large collection of hiking rucksacks. I never knew one man could own so many damn backpacks. <laughs> he might say that about my shoe collection, but I would argue they're more justified. <laughs> well, feel lucky then that you're not forced to live in a six square metre room in Shanghai, which is so small that you can sit on the toilet and cook at the same time. It's been offered for, for rent at 380 UN. That's 55 US dollars per month. Mark, could you hack it? I think you find a lot of people in London, if they were offered somewhere to live for $55, would bite your hand off. Mm. Um, and uh, this would be funny if it wasn't so tragic in, in this city, because I, I do think that the, one of the biggest public policy failings uh, here in the last 25 years has been that we, we have not dealt with housing. And so housing is totally unaffordable. Um, I'm delighted, Latika, you've got somewhere that is affordable and manageable. Lots of younger people I know are really struggling with that. Oh, absolutely. And we need to build yeah. more houses. Of course, houses will be smaller than they used to be. New houses are. But um, that's not the, the main reason for the terrible state of the housing situation in this country now. Mm. So, yeah, $55. I, I, I might not be in myself. I know people who are. I mean, Latika, one person commented on the Chinese version of TikTok that living there will make you lose your dignity as a human. Is where you live important for your self-respect? 
Look, I think a space this small um, should be illegal to live in, frankly. I mean, sitting on the toilet at the same time as cooking, for the first time in my life, Georgina, I am against multitasking. (laughs) (laughs) What, no cooking crap? (laughs) Oh, Georgina, you went there. No, no, no. (laughs) Sorry about that. But it's not just in China, as you say, Mark, that rentals in London are insane. I mean, I know students who've had to pay a year up front. There are huge numbers competing for for flats. Uh, And I just wonder what... What solutions might be? Well, we've had a total failure of our planning and regulatory system. Um, But the bigger problem is we simply haven't built enough affordable housing, social housing in particular. The Thatcher government sold off lots of state-owned housing. That would have been more justifiable had they also at the same time built more. They failed to do that, but (coughs) 25 years of the last set of governments have failed too. So... That's the single biggest problem in in London. You could ease it by better planning and regulation, but we have to build more social housing, housing association housing, which people can actually afford to live in. And that will bring lots and lots of other benefits. But I mean, Latika, people are lamenting the death of the high street as retail space in city centres closed down. If we redevelop some of those and encourage people to live above shops or made the shops themselves into retail units, uh, into uh, domestic units, wouldn't that have the dual result of reviving shopping districts and providing accommodation. I mean, that's the old style of living, isn't it? The um, the old sh- the old flat above the shop. Look, I think if we don't seriously address housing, we are going to be breeding a generation of anarchists or digital nomads or possibly both. It's something that Western governments have to get a grip on. And the truth of it is, is that uh, boomers, apologies to any present company, is they were buying houses at substantially cheaper prices. It is ridiculous to be asking people in their 20s and 30s and 40s to be asking for a first-up house that's worth a million plus. That's insane. And I think a lot of the problem is if people were into a mortgage, they could probably actually afford the rental payments. It's the deposit, trying to save for that while renting and then trying to pay off a mortgage that's the problem. So the government could do something innovative there in providing lending for the deposit up front um, or a similar scheme. But I think that has to be a way in because my neighbours just rented out their house. They are charging nearly double and nearly triple of what their actual mortgage is in rent. So how is somebody renting able to ever dream or hope of getting ahead in these yeah. in these circumstances? They cannot. And I suppose when you look at tiny little flats like this one advertised in Shanghai, it might also depend on the weather. If you're cooped up in winter, it would be a nightmare in a small space. Come spring and the return of the sunshine, it wouldn't be so bad. Spring always symbolises new beginnings. As Andrew Muller reflects, looking back on this day in Czechoslovakia in 1968. Spring is the season of renewal. We associate spring with clouds parting and flowers blooming. It is unsurprising that spring has become a recurrent political and historical metaphor for some or other kind of actual or anticipated great thaw. It appears to be the end for Tunisia's president after 23 years in power. Events endowed with the spring suffix have included the Arab Spring, which upended the Middle East in the early 2010s, the Cedar Spring, which erupted in Lebanon in 2005, the Damascus Spring of 
the very early years of Bashar al-Assad's presidency of Syria, the Moscow Spring associated with the reforms of Russian President Mikhail Gorbachev, and the Seoul Spring, which accompanied South Korea's progress from tyranny to democracy. But the first optimistic upheaval to have been popularly acknowledged as an honest-to-goodness spring might have been the one which properly began on this day in 1968, in what was then Czechoslovakia, the Prague Spring. Before anyone writes in, yes, Czech prog rock institution, the plastic people of the universe, playing now, formed shortly after the Prague Spring. And yes, this track from their album, Egon Bondi's Happy Hearts Club Band, was released six years after that, we know. But their avant jazz noodlings are nevertheless broadly thematically appropriate. The Prague Spring budded at the end of decades of debilitating chill, during which Czechoslovakia had been possessed consecutively by Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union. By January 5th, 1968, Czech President Antonin Novotny, a dismal and unimaginative communist hardliner, had been effectively or actually in charge for 15 years, which seemed like even longer. On January 5th, 1968, reformers within the Czech Communist Party made their move. Novotny was succeeded as first secretary of the Communist Party by Alexander Dubček. A little less than three months later, Dubček also elbowed Novotny out of the presidency. Dubček's big idea was what he called socialism with a human face. He was, by no stretch of the definition, an anti-communist. He'd been raised and educated in the Soviet Union proper, fought the Nazis alongside Soviet-trained partisans during World War II, and joined the Communist Party of Slovakia as soon as there was one to join. By 1968, he had grasped that communism as it was wasn't working, but still believed that it could be made to, largely by abandoning many Moscow-imposed repressions, as petty as they were brutal, and accepting that there were more important measures of a society's success and happiness than fealty to the obscurantist doctrines of Marx and Lenin. Not for the last time, a European leader with ideas of their own had underestimated both the ruthlessness and foolishness at large in the Kremlin. In late July, the Soviet Union's High Command, General Secretary Leonard Brezhnev, Premier Alexei Kosygin, Chairman of the Presidium Nikolai Podgorny, Second Secretary Mikhail Suzlov, among other heavyweights, summoned Dubček to a summit at the border town of Chiana to discuss the situation much as bailiffs dangling a defaulter by their ankles from a high window are discussing loan restructure. Dubček offered some concessions. They were not, and were never going to be, enough. Once again, the Soviet Union, demonstrating a colossal contempt for the opinion of mankind, has resorted to brute force to keep a satellite nation under control. Russian tanks and infantry, aided by troops from East Germany, Hungary, Poland and Bulgaria, have occupied Czechoslovakia 
and have crushed the new and relatively liberal leadership of that small country. On August 20th, 1968, the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia. Dubček, remarkably, survived the experience and lived long enough to not only witness the Velvet Revolution of 1989, but serve as the chair of the Federal Assembly of a Free Nation. It was true people power that toppled the hardline communist leaders here, and it was surprisingly swift and easy. Five days of demonstrations involving several hundred thousand people in Wenceslas Square. And it was fitting that while the party leaders were deciding what to do, Tonight's featured speaker at the demonstration was Alexander Dubček, whose own reform movement 21 years ago had been brutally crushed by Soviet-led tanks. Dubček Nahrad, they chanted, Dubček to the castle. Prague Castle is the residence of the president. Now an aging, nostalgic symbol, Dubček from the balcony embraced the crowd. In politics, unlike the weather, there is sometimes an extremely long winter in between spring and summer. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you, Andrew, who brings this edition of the Monocle Daily to an end. A big thanks, too, to my panellists today, Latika Burke and Sir Mark Lowcock, and to Stephen Diel for joining us at the top of the show. Today's programme was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre and Nikolai Pamintuin. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton. I'm Georgina Godwin here in London, and I'll be back on the Monocle Daily at the same time tomorrow. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. <laughs>